Hi all, welcome to Mending Our Fences, a podcast series where folks from the ag and body-mind health worlds come together to take a look at some of the everyday hard things that come with ag life, take them apart to figure out what makes them hard and put them back together in sometimes surprising ways that hopefully provide some hope and possibility. I'm Lisa O'Hara. I am a clinical social worker. I've been in the field for about 25 years and I specialize in trauma and resilience. Hi, I'm Josh Taylor and I'm with the University of Vermont Department of Community Development and Applied Economics. I work with farmers from all backgrounds, providing risk management education and facilitating farm management teams, connecting farmers with any resources they need to solve complex problems. Hello, I'm Ginger Fenton, and I work with Penn State Extension as an extension educator who focuses on dairy production, farm safety, food safety, and farm stress. So I interact with dairy farmers and their families, dairy processors, including on-farm processors, and as a farmer myself, I'm also involved with our local agricultural community. Hi all, I'm Maria Papitas. I also am an extension educator focusing on family and consumer sciences with the University of Delaware Cooperative Extension. I work with all sorts of families and with farmers, primarily around farm stress, financial management, estate planning, and health insurance. So I'm so glad everybody's here and I can't wait to hear your stories and pick your brains about things that will be useful to people listening. So each session, we're gonna focus on an experience from ag life, um, explore the challenges that those experiences bring, and we're going to talk about them to learn about what makes them hard to go through and maybe make them easier to talk about. Regular life can feel so regular that sometimes we're in the middle of hard and challenging times and we may not notice the impact they're having. This podcast is hopefully gonna help us to take a look at those hard things, figure out what makes them hard and hopefully make them easier. So without further ado, welcome to the podcast. Let's just start talking about what we know about family stress and the farm. And what are the things that make that a relevant topic that people might be interested in or concerned about? And so my first thought is that growing into the people that we are, we, we learn how to do that as being part of a family. And so family relationships are really loaded with a lot of, with a lot of experiences and thoughts and feelings. Some of them we can, we can talk about openly and some of them we can't. Being part of a family can be really hard and complicated. Being part of a family trying to run a farm can be even more complicated. What makes it hard for people when you're, you know, who work on farms and who, who are struggling to kind of manage the business end of things as well as their family relationships? One thing that um, I think can, makes it really hard for, for farm families is the, the lack of space. You don't get away. You work with your family and you live with your family and there's not that outlet to go somewhere else and to talk to other people and see something different. And they're they're there all the time. And so that keeps people really, that keeps people really close in ways that can be helpful, but also keeps them close in ways that can get in the way 
of having hard conversations, whether it's conversations about what to do financially, what to do with you know, what the dreams for the farm are, what the what ideas are for business. So it really, it sounds like all that closeness <laughs> could be a little bit of, of a strain at times. <laughs> for sure. I think, I, think. I think we can all relate to that in one way, shape or form or another, since considering that we've all been dealing with COVID and we've probably all been kind of having a little bit of up close and personal time in our own, in our own families, I'm going to guess that that would apply across the board. So what are you guys seeing in terms of that kind of stress? Like, how does that shown up in families that you've worked with? Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with uh, you both on that. I think, um, you know, the, the issue of even, even in families, farm families that are, um, you know, working really well together and really close, even if they want to get away from the farm and, and have some personal space or time, um, it's often really just not even possible. And I think, you know, that, that can be true of any type of farming certain times of the year. I think that can be, um, maybe most commonly experienced with farms that work with animals and and livestock, because you just have to be there every, every day of the week, every week of the year. And, um, and there's in that setting, there's not really any such thing as vacation. Um, and, you know, I think of that, I see that maybe the most in, in dairying, um, because it's, it's not just a daily thing, but it's like multiple times a day, you have to be out with your animals, caring for them, um, you know, getting them in the milking parlor and back and forth. And, um, so I think, I think those time issues and just not even being able to take a day off, um, can be really challenging and something that puts a lot more stress on the family. Okay. So no time off, no breaks. So literally no time off from the business itself, no time off from the responsibilities and the thought process, because you're literally living the business and the business is your life. I mean, there's no, and then when you throw the need for us to be connected to each other, onto that and how important those relationships are in terms of creating a sense of safety and connection in the world. And at the same time, needing that balance of being close in meaningful ways, but also needing to get distance so you can think clearly and see things objectively. But it sounds like that really is a big stress that the majority of people who work in, in ag face on, in one way, shape or form or another. Can you guys think of, are there other ways that the farm, like kind of stress shows up in terms of family with people that you've worked with? So one of the interesting things about farm families is, according to USDA, 94% of all farm operations are farm family run. Uh, And so what does that really mean and look like? So when I've kind of gone out and seen farms, we're really talking about intergenerational uh, operations, right? So I'm just going to say senior or dad, right? Uh, and, and potentially spouse, right, are, are running the farm. They have children. Those children have grown up on the farm. Um, they, may, uh, they may have interest in farming. They may not have interest in farming. Um, and so there's a couple of things going on there, right? Part of it is 
you know, dad may feel very successful in the farm and, and really want the farm to continue. And so there's this legacy piece, uh, but, um, but may not want that for their, their children. And so then they don't really engage the children in farming per se. So I've seen that. I've also seen um, times when the kids are interested in the farm, but they're from a different generation. And so they have very different views about how they want to farm. And so then there could be conflict or dynamics around what a senior generation thinks is capable and, and able to be done versus what the younger generation want to do and get excited about. Uh, so there can be sort of some intergenerational dynamics that can play out um, that can be successful or not, right? Depending on how those families communicate and plan and, and, um, and, and, and kind of share their dreams. So Maria, I hear you when you're saying that because there are lots of different scenarios that can kind of unfold, everybody kind of, in a lot of ways, doesn't, they have the best, the best interests of the farm at heart, and they, they're trying to have the best interests of the family at heart, but because of other dynamics that are almost separate from the farm itself, there's, there's generational things to consider, there's family role things to consider, there's the social and cultural ways that we're all raised in terms of what it means to be male and what it means to be female and how we show up in relationships. And so all of those factors come into play when, when farm families try to sit down and have a conversation about what the farm means and what their dreams are for that farm and what, what the connection to the farm is in terms of family legacy and and so there's also then the potential there for a lot of overwhelm and confusion, grief. Sometimes if one, fat, one person wants one thing and one person wants another or financial stuff impairs the ability to move the farm forward in the way that people want to. So it's really it's a lot more complicated, I think, than, than most families realize when they get up every day, you know, put their clothes on, head out the door and actually go to work on that farm or get up every day, put their clothes on and go out the door and go work off the farm because that's what needs to happen. So it sounds like that there are so many factors that come into play that can make being a farm family more complicated than people realize and therefore a lot more stressful than people realize. Am I getting that right? Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, and what you're saying makes me think about the roles that people have. And, you know, if you're thinking about a nine to five sort of job, um, you have that role and, and maybe you bring home some of that stress to your home life with your family or partner. Um, but with farming and, and family farming, which it, like you said, Maria is like 94% of, of farms in our country. Um, you've got that worker role or maybe that farmer role or the farmer manager role, but then you're also um, maybe a parent, a child, a sibling, and there's just layers of expectations there. And, you know, I think we, we all manage 
our expectations of ourselves and, and other people as coworkers and colleagues. But then we have another entirely different set of expectations and um, responsibilities as family members. And I think it, it can be really powerful, but it can also be really stressful. It's a lot um, to have all layered on top of things. And um, we also really take, take things that our family members say sometimes really personally. And maybe, maybe depending on the setting, maybe more personally than we take uh, comments or actions from colleagues, um, which are also really important. So I, I think, um, yeah, our, our families mean a lot to us. And so those relationships are, are both really um, beautiful and supportive, but also really loaded. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to hear you say that because what it makes me think about is belonging and the idea that belonging feels differently in different places. And so as part of being part of a family, I think we grow up just kind of expecting, expecting that our families are going to be there because that's what families do. And yet underneath that, I love the word layered when you said there's lots of layers because there are. And so when it comes to having to make decisions about the well-being of an entity like a farm, but that's potentially that the, un the underpinning of making those decisions has to come through all the layers of those complicated relationships that when people are so busy putting one foot in front of the other every day, you're just kind of having daily life experiences. They're not aware of all those layers and why making decisions can be so hard, why it can be so overwhelming, um, why you can, if you have the luxury of, of working away from your family with, with people who are not related to you, you can get feedback or get comments from them and take it one way, but, but hear somebody in your family say the same thing to you and it rubs you a completely different, different way and, and can feel hurtful or, or distressing. And so it's, it sounds like there's a, lot to, there's a lot more to this than I would imagine the average farm family realizes. Am I getting that right? For sure. Um, <laughs> I laugh, you know, and thinking about this, sometimes we know when we get called to do farm visits, I should probably leave my coveralls at home and get a whistle and put on a referee jersey because you're going out to solve some type of conflict that they want to know. Again, maybe it's generational, maybe it's between siblings, but one has an idea that a certain practice needs to be performed this way and uh, the others don't agree. And I guess as ag professionals, when we go out, you know, it, it, it's a really tricky situation. Do you, who do you support? <laughs> you want to encourage the next generation. You don't want to be in the middle of a family conflict. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's tough to know, to know how to handle that. Um, besides listen and let, but I guess I try and listen and let them talk it out and try and provide, I guess, the science and recommended practices and kind of let them sort that out on their own from there. You know what? It, that brings up a really, it, it actually makes me start thinking about, so then how can we take this apart a little bit and maybe take the things that complicate these, all these different kinds of relationships for people how can we take it apart and help people kind of look at what 
what we need to do to help each other hear, to hear each other better, to create safety in, in those conversations. Because if there's no safety there, if people don't feel like they have a space to be seen or heard, they shut down and there's no good communication that's going to come. So therefore, no decisions that can be made. And even, and so even, you know, when I say, talk about creating safety, I think some people might think, I mean that, that we have to agree on everything. And actually, that's not true. Conflict is part of every relationship. We can't have relationships without conflict because we're all different people. So even if we grow up in a family, let's just say that the Smiths, and as a Smith, this is who we are, and this is how we conduct ourselves, and this is how, with what we value, this is how we behave. Just because you're a Smith doesn't mean that you don't have independent needs separate from all the other Smiths. And often, when it comes to having hard conversations, figuring out how to get people's needs met is the key to being able to move a topic from the introduction forward into a place of resolution or or any kind of mo- you know forward motion. And so maybe we should talk a little bit about what what needs to happen in that in that conversation in order to make it possible for people to actually feel safe enough to have it to begin with. Yeah, I, I um, agree with you, Lisa. And just thinking about how can we have conversations and 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 what is helpful to be talking about and, and what are helpful ways to talk about it. And one thing that comes to mind is I think it can be really hard to even have those conversations when we see or feel maybe even more so when we feel them, uh, when we feel these issues as insurmountable and just like huge weights on us. And I think maybe one thing that could be helpful is thinking about them, like breaking down these issues into smaller pieces. And so just thinking about um, the common issue of family farm succession and, and what, um, what a family farm can do to be multi-generational and, and successful. They really, the farm family really needs to know what everyone that's involved and that, that has stakes in it, um, what they want. And I think that can be a helpful starting place sometimes is just like, you know, what do, what does the older generation want? What do, um, any members of the younger generation want? And, and, you know, figuring out how to align those things, I think is maybe a little bit later of a conversation, but just being able to share those needs, share what, what you think might be fulfilling, um, or, or just sharing your concerns. Um, but I think breaking, breaking things down and, and maybe just doing our best to not see something as one huge issue and that there's a lot of elements and everybody has different perspectives on it. That would be one of my questions is sort of like, you know, when do you have the split, right? Or maybe it's multiple, it's not two, maybe it's multiple, right? Depending on the number of people of the family, you know, what, what can what can families do to like get closer to the middle, right, or align in a way? Because um, it's not often, you know, like compromise isn't really going to do it, right? Um, consensus may never happen, 
And so then they're like stuck. So how, how, how can families sort of come closer together for, for lack of a better words uh, around um, differences in ideas and opinions, whether it's legacy or succession planning or diversification of the farm or, you know, even like who's going to babysit because, you know, the cows have to be milked. <laughs> so. Right. Yeah, I think so. that's a great question. And I think that, so part of it is, you know, Josh, I like what you said about breaking it down into smaller pieces because it does feel insurmountable. And I think that's actually a great point. When, oftentimes when we confront something over and over again, the way that our bodies or our brains are wired, if that thing is something that's been emotionally loaded, if it comes with with something that can feel like if I disagree or I think the wrong thing or I do the wrong thing, I'm going to risk my sense of belonging in my group and my family. It, it, we, we experience that as a, as a real threat that it's not a, it's not a threat that with your, with, when you're using your conscious mind, you would think um, is, is the way we would look at something scary, like being chased down the street by somebody with a machete. But it's actually scarier because our need as human beings to feel like we belong to a group is a source of safety. So oftentimes when we think about having insurmountable conversations because there's so much emotional baggage that comes along with that. If you think about <clears throat> all the times maybe this conversation may have almost been broached at the table or you, you're in the shower in the morning and you have a thought about it and you're like, oh, I should probably say something, but then you go to do it and your body kind of clenches up and you're like, no, I can't. It's because you have this feeling something bad's going to come if you, if you talk honestly about where your, what your thoughts and feelings are about whatever this is. It, it, it actually does get in the way and make things feel even more insurmountable because each time you approach it and you don't get to approach it successfully, you don't get to have any closure or any movement with whatever this is that you want to talk about, it actually ends up making you feel more anxious. It makes you feel more upset. It makes you feel more unsettled. And so then, you know, so you retreat, feeling a little more helpless, feeling a little more hopeless, feeling a little more unable to, you know, to figure out how to have this hard conversation. And it makes it even harder then to go back and have it the next time. So I like what you said about first breaking it down into priorities. But I think the other thing, Maria, that you touched on was the importance of recognizing what the commonalities are that, we, that people share when it comes to having a hard, hard conversation. So going back and like looking at, at the family, for example, and what are, their, what are their principles? What are their ethics? What are their morals? What do they stand for? And how can we find common ground in terms of the goals we've identified we'd like to see happen and what and how we represent who we are in the achievement of those goals and moving in that direction. And so that helps, I think, to take that bigger, that bigger issue and break it into smaller chunks, but it also gives us a foundation to stand on that we can always go back to in terms of, well, if I make this choice, what does this say about me? Is it in line with who I am as a person? Is it in line with who we are as a family? What, what does it mean if we make this choice? And how do we, how does that fit with how we identify 
as 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 a family and then individual members of that family because as we said earlier everybody in that in that relationship is going to have different needs but if you can identify what we have in common it actually gives us something more to work for to work towards that helps to structure the decision making process in in a way does that does that make sense it does make sense i think um you know kind of being able to articulate those feelings right and those actions uh for individuals within the family um is important and i think you know i'm just sort of thinking from the intergenerational perspective like you know so here's mom and dad and and they've um tried to pass down certain ideals and values and uh, ways of thinking and ways of being to their children. And, you know, we all know that there are stages in life when children don't really agree with what their parents <laughs> taught them. Uh, and so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of wondering about that, you know, like how, how can we help families reconcile that, you know, it's sort of like this, it is a life stage thing, right? That, you know, someone in their teens may respond certain ways to what the family means and the ideals of the family versus someone in their 30s or 40s, right? So is there, are there ways to, you know, help parents and, and children kind of recognize that and maybe communicate about that to reconcile those differences too? I think that talking about helping people recognize the things that we all care about and the things we, you know, most human beings have in common is we care about living, loving, and dying. They're the things that kind of bind us all. So what I find, what I think happens a lot of times with generational differences is that the longer, we, the longer time we spend in an us situation, the harder it is to connect with them. And I think that there are natural divides, right, that, that happen in terms of how we see people from different generations. So older people are likely to look at younger people and think they're reckless or think that they, they take things for granted or that they don't understand the, the, the blood, sweat, and tears that went into the effort that, that these younger folks have opinions about. And I think younger people have stereotypical ideas about older people. And so... I think that becomes even more important when trying to have those conversations intergenerationally is to really find that common ground, to find out what we value. What, why does this decision matter? By making this decision or this choice, what are we hoping to achieve? Not just in terms of the literal outcome, but what does it mean? What, what is the meaning of the choice? What are the implications of it in terms of how what we value, what we think, what we feel, what kind of legacy we want to leave. And so I, so when it comes to intergenerational conflict, I think finding common ground, making each other feel like you see each other and hear each other, it's actually a great place for reflective listening. So if you have two people who sit down and they're trying to have a hard conversation, one of the things that our nervous systems naturally make us want to do is to anticipate what the other person's going to say next before it's ever out of their mouth. On one hand, we can say, you know, 
Our amygdala is what drives, it's part of our fear center, is what drives our tendency to do that. And it's self-protective, but it also shuts us, you know, shoots us in the foot because if we're so busy thinking about what the other person, knowing what the other person is going to say, that we're not hearing them, then when they do say something different, we miss it. And then we've just kind of jumped in with our canned response to what we thought that was going to be. And it just shuts communication down. But so reflective listening allows people the opportunity to say what they need to say. The other person has to be quiet and listen because they're not allowed to say anything until they repack, repeat back what they heard the first person say. And they have to ask, am I understanding that right? If they do, you know, if they have said it right and the, the, the first person who was speaking can, can say that back to them, then they're now free to respond. And so it's basically kind of a very balanced back and forth, give and take in, in terms of conversation. But what it does is it slows our brains and our bodies down because it makes you shift your, your mental focus from the thing you're projecting is going to happen to what literally is happening. And it creates the space then for us to actually be with each other in real time to feel the, feel the difference in connection. If we're too busy each being in our own heads, anticipating that the other person's going to say what they've already said, that creates more distance and makes those conversations unsafe to have and harder to have. And so reflective listening would be a first would be the first place to start in terms of finding ways to identify what we have in common and what we share so that then we can take whatever this issue is and turn it into a problem that we have. So if we have a problem, how can we come up with a solution? How can we find a way to solve it? And if you think about just saying the word we, if you experiment that with that in your head for a minute and just kind of sit and say it and just pay attention to what your body does versus the word you. If you, if you sit and think about the word you, most people will tell me that the word we get, brings up a sense of warmth. It brings up a sense of calm. It brings up a sense of peace, but the word you makes people feel really isolated, sometimes afraid or really uncomfortable or alone. And so oftentimes when it comes to having hard conversations too, creating a sense of we or us helps people feel like they're not alone and makes it easier to be willing to hear opposite perspectives. Even if you end up agreeing to disagree, it creates a lot more safety around that because hopefully both people in the conversation have had the opportunity to feel the other person feel them and hear the other person hear them, which is really as human beings, all we, all we, it's what we want. It's the foundation of how we have relationships with anybody. I think that makes a lot of sense to me, Lisa. And, and also I think, having tried and, and practiced reflective listening some myself and hearing you talk about it, I'm like, that's really tough. That's really challenging to not go ahead in the conversation. And, you know, I find myself doing that right now. I'm like, oh, well, you know, we're having this conversation about how we can take care of ourselves and our families. And, and, and I'm like, well, what about this or that? And, and, um, you know, what's the next thing to, to say in this conversation? That's really tough. And so 
it makes me wonder, you know, what sorts of tools are there? And I wonder from your perspective as a therapist, are there things that we could do maybe before going into these family conversations? I wonder maybe, maybe on our own, if it's like doing some journaling about maybe, you know, what our, what our needs are or what our fears are around the farm, around the family, around um, how we might be misinterpreted. And, and so I'd love to hear all your thoughts on, on that, on, you know, simple, if there's like simple tools or things we can, we can write up to help ourselves going into conversations. And I think, you know, it's, it's easy, like you were saying, it's easy to get, um, like emotionally flooded or, or triggered to the point where we kind of, uh, stop, stop, um, having access to our, you know, more, more logical thinking brain. Um, so yeah, I wonder what, what sorts of tools or ideas you might have in terms of breaking it down and, and preparing ourselves for these sorts of discussions. <laughs> so I'm thinking as you're talking about that, it makes me, I'm laughing because I'm thinking about all those conversations I've tried to have with my family with all the great intentions of getting, you know, grounded and calm before I go in there and then having it all blow up. So I think it really, I think probably all can relate to that in one way, shape or form or another. Um, so actually, yeah, the, I think it's a great, it's a great point in that there are things that we can do because you, you said something that's important, whether we know it or not. We as human beings have two, we have two brains, we have two hemispheres of our brain that work independently of each other. I don't want to go into like the deep, deep, dark mechanics of the human, human brain function. However, there's two key things that are good to know. And I wish that everybody knew this because if we could teach a course called the care and feeding of the human brain, these would be fundamental pieces of information. The first one is that, that our right brain is the part of our brain that manages all of our fear responses. So, and those fear responses are subconscious and they are involuntary, which means that if you encounter a situation that overwhelms your ability to cope with it and hard family conversations are, are great examples of a place where this happens a lot, your nervous system goes into fight or flight. Fight or flight is not wired. You're not wired to use fight or flight as a rational process. It is an involuntary process. It means you don't get to choose it. It chooses you. And when it decide, when it happens, it is specifically designed to flood your body with stress hormones, to give you superhuman strength, to get yourself out of the dangerous situation to safety. It is not a long-term, it's not concerned with long-term solutions. It's not concerned with viability um, in terms of what, what's realistic and what we can, what's this going to, you know, what's going to happen if I do this five minutes from now or even two years from now? It literally is designed to get you the heck out of Dodge until you're safe, and that's it. The other side of our brain is where our rational brain processing is located. It is conscious and it is voluntary. The goal that you're kind of talking about is figuring out. If you know you're going to sit down and have a hard conversation with somebody, how do I approach the conversation from a place where I'm in that rational part of my brain rather than in the, the fight or flight side? Because when I'm in the fight or flight side, I'm not rational. I'm not, I'm not responsive. I am reactive. 
your brain kind of gets hijacked when you're in that place. But when you can move yourself over to what we call regulation, which means that your heart rate comes down, your thoughts, you, you bring your, 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 your brainwave function to a more normal um, regulated place, your breathing slows, it actually allows you to inhabit that part of you where you do your best thinking because your body is in a place of safety. So there are lots of tools that we can use. The journaling idea, I'm sure there are some folks out there who hear you say the word journal and they're kind of like, you know, bleh. However, journaling probably gets a bad rap because everybody thinks it's this touchy-feely thing that we do. And it can be, that's true. And journaling can also be a really powerful way of releasing emotional tension. Because when we are holding emotional material, thoughts, feelings, a lot of them unspoken, they actually have energy in our bodies. And when that energy in our bodies sits there, our culture kind of acts like our, our bodies are able to in, you know, indefinitely just withstand accumulating more and more and more of that unspoken, unprocessed experience. But that's not true. We get to a place where our nervous systems are, have had enough. And if we don't take care of how we accumulate those, those uncomfortable feelings, they'll find a way to explode on their own. So part of, part of getting regulated is using things like journaling. We'll talk a little bit about how to use breath um, and other body conscious ways of bringing people into, into present attention because they're the ways to show up for those hard conversations so that you're, you have a better chance of being responsive as opposed to reacting. So if we use the example of journaling, yeah, you can sit down and write about your, your deep, dark feelings and worries, and that's something people do. But you can also just use the paper as a place to like write as fast as you can think. And when you do that, you don't use punctuation, you don't use spelling, you don't even write in a way that you'll be able to read later because the whole point is getting all the energy of that, of the fear, the discomfort, the things you might be anticipating are going to go wrong out on the paper. And there's something about the process that actually tricks our minds into letting go of all that stuff we've been carrying around and ruminating over the stuff that kind of loops through our brains in the form of thoughts that we would like to maybe stop thinking and that we can't. Another way of bringing ourselves back into a regulated place is by using your breath. Um, again, some people may hear the words, oh, no, you're going to talk to me about breathing. That's like hippie stuff. Well, yeah, no, we all have lungs. We all have hearts. And whether we like it or not, what we do with our breath affects how fast our hearts beat and affects how our bodies take in the oxygen that actually keeps us calm. When your brain gets enough oxygen, you calm down. When you calm down, you're actually able to do your best thinking because you've moved yourself from, from right brain panic-based function over to left brain calm. And when you're calm, you can think more clearly. You can think about goals that you set. And therefore, you know, for example, if you're going to have a conversation, why am I having it? What's the desired outcome of the conversation that I'd like to see happen? Um, what are the, the pros and the cons of the choices that might be available that, that, this converse, that this conversation might bring up? And what's the end goal? What do I want to see happen as a result of having this conversation? 
all of those ways of thinking are part of our prefrontal cortex, <clears throat> which is in, which is driven by our left brain. So if you can slow your breath down, you can slow your thoughts down, which allows you to show up for hard conversations from a much more grounded, centered, focused way. Another, another way is to check in with your body because stress responses live in you physically first. So for those folks, you know, who are listening, who are under a lot of stress, and I think over these past two and a half years, we've all been under an immense amount of stress. Our bodies get used to carrying tension um, in ways that start to feel normal. We don't realize that we're doing it. So one, a very effective way to check in with yourself to see if you are more in that grounded, regulated place versus the panicked, upset, reactive place is to just start by focusing on what your feet are doing. If you're sitting in a tractor listening to this, if you're sitting at your kitchen table, just gently push your feet onto the floor for a minute and just shift your attention to what your feet are doing. And then gradually take your awareness from your feet up to your shins, up to your knees, up to your butt, all the way through your body. Each time you pay attention to those parts, you get the option to become aware of whether you're holding tension there and you can release it. So again, one of the metaphors that I use when we talk about anger is the Mento in the Pepsi bottle exercise. I don't know if you've ever looked it up on YouTube or ever had the, the privilege of doing a science experiment with your child, but I highly recommend looking it up because it's absolutely cool to watch. Notice I say cool to watch because having a Mento with the Pepsi bottle inside your chest, probably not the best thing. Because when you put the Mento in the Pepsi bottle, it immediately starts fizzing. And when it starts fizzing, it builds up temp it builds up pressure. And eventually that pressure gives and the Pepsi explodes all over out of the Pepsi bottle. And if you've ever done this experiment, intentionally or unintentionally, you know how much fun it is to clean up Pepsi. Well, cleaning up uncomfortable feelings is probably just as much fun, maybe, maybe less. So all of these techniques are ways of kind of learning how to maybe not put the Mento in the Pepsi bottle to begin with. But if the Mento is already in there, helping you to find ways to set it down gently somewhere where it can't hurt anybody, including you. So I don't, not sure if that, that makes a whole lot of sense, but it makes sense to me. So uh, it, it seems to me that you're, you're talking about some strategies that you can use that can really help you be um, resilience, right? And building resilience and within the family, within the individual, right? You were kind of focusing on resilience for yourself, right? Letting things out, trying to express them, come to the conversation calm. Um, you, you also talked a little bit about making meaning, right? Putting, creating meaning, not just for your own self, but uh, within the family. What are what are the things that are really important and and how do we how do we explain and manage and help convey uh, the meaning around things that can really help people be uh, more resilient and families to be more resilient when um, they're kind of connected in in those ways and have common ground in those ways. Are there other things that individuals and families can do to be, you know, more resilient in the face of crazy family dynamics? 
Well, you hit, you actually said something that, that also struck another chord around the meaning making piece. And I think this actually bridges the gap between the individual parts of what we can do to take care of ourselves. And I, and I guess as far-fetched as this sounds, and I don't know if people listening would be able to even envision something like this happening, but can you imagine what it might be like to sit down with a, a person or a couple people that you love or care about? And if all of you had been able to do some of those things, take some breaths, check in with your bodies, look inside to see what you're carrying around that has something to do with this conversation that you're getting ready to have. Can you envision what that might feel like to sit down with people who are grounded and present and conscious so that you're prepared to, 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 be, to be there and stay there to approach the problem that we have in a way that might actually move it in the direction of resolution. And so the thing that came to mind as you, I was listening to you kind of summarize all that is in the meaning making piece is that not only does the meaning making apply to how we individually have conversations with each other in terms of like, you know, what you had talked about earlier, Josh, the harder conversations and all the layers of stuff. If we can't show up in a grounded way and we are already anticipating what the other person's going to say, part of that anticipation is meaning making. And nine times out of 10, the meaning making that we do in terms of anticipating is wrong because we're basing the meaning making on old ideas, on half, half finished conversations, um, interpretations of other people's behavior and the rationale behind it without having real input from them. And, and so we don't ever get the true story behind why they think what they think or why they feel what they feel. And without that information, our brains are wired to fill in the blanks. And nine times out of 10, we fill those blanks in wrong. So we make the wrong meaning. So if you come into a conversation with a hard conversation with someone already making inaccurate meaning, your ability to f see it through is really gonna be hindered and and you're probably not going to go very far or get what you want, which then ends up supporting the negative idea you had about having the conversation to begin with. So I think that same principle applies to not only individual conversations and meaning making, but how to take that larger and then and showing up when you're engaged with other people outside of your family, other people in the community, so that when you show up you're showing up as a, a reliably who you are from a grounded, calm, conscious place. Um, there are, you know, and so, it, and so of course, we also realize that there are problems that can feel insurmountable and that can feel larger than the average family is able to sort out on their own. And I think, you know, both Josh and Ginger alleged early on in the conversation about how they get called on to come in to kind of mediate or referee um, in family situations where hard things have to be talked about. So another way of, of doing that is engaging other supportive people in your community who are trained to, to who are not part of the, the, the actual conflict, but who can bring in an objective perspective that's fact-based, that is, that is gonna present 
accurate information so that as people are trying to make meaning, they can put their heads together with real-time information that they can trust to make harder decisions. Um, and I think on an even larger scale, if we're talking about how to, how to create connection and how to create the connection that allows us to have difficult conversations, we need to role model the behavior that we would like people to, to, to show us out there in the world at large. So whether that means you're engaging with the bank teller, you're engaging with the person at the drugstore, you're engaging with the person who, you know, who brings your groceries to your car, whatever that is, trying to stay as grounded as we can to show up in as authentic a way as we can are ways to kind of help keep connection, reduce the stress of what happens when we feel so isolated and feel like we're actually affecting the world on a larger scale than just our little microcosm. We've talked a little bit about how to handle family stuff on an individual basis. We've talked about a little, a little bit in terms of kind of larger things that you can do to, to help create a sense of connection and safety um, in the community at large, which then also helps you feel like you, you are, you belong. And so the last place would be to look at community resources, because we recognize that even though we can bring all these problem solving tools to the table and try to use them, there are going to be times when things feel bigger or are bigger and you may need outside support. And so luckily there are, there are really great resources in the community. Um, the Department of Agriculture, um, many of them have free mediation sources. Um, there are also community mediation agencies that are nonprofits in various states around here. Mediation can be a really powerful tool to use because just like we talked about at the beginning, helping people hear each other is the key to, to having hard conversations. And sometimes people who are not in it, who don't have um, an interest in this, the conflict that's happening are a much better place to help people see things from an objective perspective. And then also think more creatively about outcomes. So at the end of the day, I think what we're talking about family-wise is needing to is needing to recognize that hard conversations don't have to be so hard, that family conflict doesn't have to be so overwhelming, that there are things that we as individuals can do to prepare ourselves to sit down to connect to people. And that by recognizing, you know, that, that it is hard, that we need to feel, be compassionate for our, to ourselves, compassionate to each other, recognize that we've all been through a whole lot over these past two and a half years, and we're still going through it. That, that those tools that we talked about a little earlier are even more important to engage now because we're all a little more vulnerable. Another thing to consider, um, we have to remember we're the family unit and plan activities together and still, still function as a family. Allow for those good times, celebrate your successes, maybe have a, have a fun day after, you know, after harvest season or after you've, after you've weaned calves or whatever it is that has caused a lot of stress in the family and find downtime and do those relaxing activities, still bond. Because, and, you know what, Ginger, because that allows us to see each other 
the way we really are. I think you actually hit another good piece of information there. When we habitually see each other in stressful situations, our brains are wired to continue to see our, to see each other in that way, even when the stress goes away. And so one of the beautiful things about being able to kind of put some of that stuff aside and change gears is allows us to remember why we love one another and, and who we are to each other. And that's, so that's absolutely brilliant um, and a really good point. So thanks for saying that. So, so thinking about um, what Ginger was just saying there um, in terms of having fun together and, and building our bonds and de-stressing, I wonder if it might be helpful to think of uh, sort of like a sandwich where the middle of the sandwich is that challenging conversation, which, which I think we can think of as challenging, but also maybe liberating or, or you know, helpful in a, a variety of ways. But maybe you know, we don't wanna go into that, uh, that discussion about our family farm and its dynamics and its future and its challenges. We probably don't wanna go into that from a place of feeling conflict or stress. And, that's you know easier said than done, but I could imagine it might be helpful to have some sort of um, relaxing thing to do together, maybe before, and not immediately before, say, but just sometime before that can help us relax and and bond. And maybe you know maybe for some folks that might be a walk around, uh, you know, the the woods that border your farm, or or maybe that's. Uh, sharing a meal or a cup of tea or, you know, I think that's probably different for everyone. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe team building uh, with folks that um, also work at the farm that maybe on in the family and maybe are, are just close other people that are part of your, your farm unit. Um, and then thinking about, and I wonder what you all think, like any suggestions for this could be, but how we can kind of wrap up or, or what tools or practices we can have after a challenging conversation. So I think it can be sometimes easy to walk away from something like that, um, kind of stewing. And, you know, reflection is important, but we don't want things to just be bottled up for too long and, and want to be able to share appreciation and affirmation um, of what everyone's shared. You know, that actually, that's a great point. And so as you're talking, I'm having this vision of times when I've had conflicts with family members and wanted to walk away suing. And I, it occurred to me that one of the things that I, that I find to be really helpful is to try to look at people as parts as opposed to one whole entity. A part of them feels this way or a part of them thinks this. Because if there's only one part that believes that, or maybe, you know, a couple that believe that, that leaves the possibility that there's lots of other parts for lots of other ways of being. And I think so often what you're, what you're talking about is how, how when we get so used to seeing someone in a situation, that's the way they, we perceive them ongoing. And so, you know, what Ginger said in terms of finding time to get away from the stress of the stuff that, that causes it, but then also bringing conscious awareness 
to who we're with and who, who we love and why we love them. And so I think you guys both brought up great points. And part of that then literally is looking at people as parts. A part of them is really struggling with giving up control over this. A part of them is having a hard time listening because they're afraid. Um, and when we use the idea of parts, it allows us to look at ourselves from a more compassionate place. It also allows us to see people from a more compassionate place because we are, we are not one-dimensional, we're, we're multifaceted. And our, and our multifaceted nature comes about as a result of how we are shaped by our experiences. So if we can see people as parts, it allows us to extend grace. It allows us to ex extend gratitude, compassion, understanding, empathy, hopefully the same things we would want them to extend us when it comes to having hard conversations. So I think that all of the things, you know, both that Ginger and Josh, you both said are great, great points to, to think about when it comes to the before in terms of preparing and then the after in terms of repairing. Because as I said earlier, conflict is part of human relationships, no matter what, it has to be. Because there, normally what I need and what you need are not gonna be the same. And I'm not gonna need what I need and you're not gonna need what you need at a time that's convenient a lot of, a lot of the time. So figuring out how to resolve conflict is a really important part of maintaining human relationships, especially when there's a lot of stress but repairing relationships is even more important. So one of the rules of thumb that I'll ask people to try to go by when they're when we do when we do couples work is if someone ends a conflict, they take a time out, they are then responsible for coming back. They are then responsible for being the one to come back and say, okay, I'm calmer now. I've got I got myself together. Is this a good time to finish the conversation? Um the other part of repair is a good apology. Being able to take responsibility for something we did or said that hurt another person, even if we didn't intend it. And it's not just enough to say, I'm sorry. It's also part of a good apology is to reflect on what it is we did that caused the discomfort. And what was the discomfort? You know, I'm sorry that I hurt your feelings. Can, can you tell me about that? And then the last part of a good apology is to, is to say, and here's what I'm going to try to do so this doesn't happen again. So it's not only a matter of preparation and then staying grounded during the actual process of the conversation, but it's also honing our repair skills. So at the end of it, we can come back together again and remember why these relationships are so important. So, so that I think is one of the, the best the best recommendations that I can come up with in terms of what to do after to try to continue to heal and, and keep the relationship intact. And perhaps even mend our fences. <laughs> yes. And mend our fences. I was going to ask what happens if you have like a double decker club sandwich of a family. <laughs> you know i i feel like we could go on talking about this all day and i just really want to get to the point of of get my pen and paper out and start writing things down you know use these tools yeah i have been <laughs> i have a few little notes here 
I think that's great that you guys found some of those tools to be helpful because that hopefully what that means is that you'll be able to, if you take them to families and they, you get some success there, that other people may hear them and, and think like, oh, here's something I could try. Yeah, that's, that makes me happy to hear that. Thank you for listening to Mending Our Fences. We hope we have provided some insights into the deeper side of some farm stressors and provided some ideas about how to manage them. This podcast was funded by the Northeast Farm and Ranch Stress Assistance Network, also known as Cultivemos.